0: We would like to acknowledge and respect the traditional owners, including the Wondery Worong people as the regional custodians of this land, along with their customs and traditions and their special relationship with the land. It's Sunday, the 31st of October and welcome to the wind down of a recap of the week's news produced by Swinburne University's The Standard. I'm your host, Angus Delaney. Among today's headlines, the Australian Government unveils their contentious net zero plan. Also coming up, we talk with climate scientist Leslie Hughes about the upcoming global summit in Glasgow.
1: So there's no technical reason why Australia couldn't convert to being fully electrified.
0: All that and much more on this week's episode of The Wind Down. And now for the week's headlines. The Australian Government has set a goal of net zero emissions by 2050, but won't make it legally binding and have no plans to phase out fossil fuels. The government says the net zero plan is based upon technology, not taxes, including an increased reliance on the controversial Carbon Capture and Storage, or CCS, which involves capturing greenhouse gas emissions and storing them underground. Australians want action on climate change. They're taking action on climate change. But they also want to protect their jobs and their livelihoods. They also want to keep the cost of living down. And they also want to protect the Australian way of life. The plan has been criticised as not enough by climate campaigners, including former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who says that Australia won't be expecting a warm welcome at the internationally important Glasgow Climate Summit, which begins on the 1st of November.
1: Well, look, he will, I'm sure everyone will be polite to him and smile and so forth, but he will not be received rapturously, let's face it.
0: The Glasgow Summit will be attended by leaders from around the world where they will announce new goals from the 2015 Paris Agreement. To further break down Australia's climate plan and the Glasgow Summit, we talk with Leslie Hughes, an ecologist and climate scientist. Well, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your career in the climate and environment kind of area just to start
1: okay so i'm an ecologist by training did my phd in ecology but fairly soon after i finished my phd i decided i needed a change of direction so i started this is back in 1990 started reading about climate change i thought it'd be a useful maybe a bit more useful for getting a job Um, And I've been doing climate change research ever since then. So um, my main research has been in looking at the impacts of climate change on species and ecosystems. And then from that got into thinking about um, conservation in the face of climate change, what climate change adaptation in in the case of biodiversity might be like. Um, and then probably about 15 years ago or so, because I was one of the very first people in Australia to get into the sort of climate change and biodiversity area, um, you know, I started getting asked to be on committees and, you know, policy committees and that sort of thing, government advising Um, And so that kind of grew, one thing led to another, to another, to another, I suppose, and so started to do a lot more kind of public speaking about climate change as it became a more, um, you know, people started to become more aware of it as a problem, it started to become a real political issue, Um, and it's gone from there. So eventually I was asked to um, be a lead author on that, of the IPCC reports, the fourth and the fifth assessments. I was asked to be a, a climate commissioner under the Gillard government. And then when Tony Abbott sacked the climate commission, when he became prime minister, we started the climate council. So a lot of my work is, is to do with the climate council now.
0: Um, what did you think when you saw the government's new net zero plan that came out earlier this week?
1: Well, it's not a plan. I mean, it's just what they were doing before. Um, Put in, put in a document with a new cover and a, and a heading. I mean, the only thing that's changed is that they have now said, we're going to aim to be net zero by 2050, but they haven't actually put in place or given any detail about how to get there. So I, I wouldn't dignify it really with the word plan. Um, you know, there's the only way we can get to net zero at any time 2050 or before or after is to move away from fossil fuels, and rapidly and (laughs) deeply. So unless a plan has a plan for doing that, it's not a plan to deal with emissions reductions at all.
0: Um, You said earlier that climate change was becoming a a political issue throughout your career. Why do you think uh, climate change, which is a science-based topic, why do you think that's become something that is political and not an accepted fact or science?
1: Look, I think if we really knew the answer to that question, we'd be very well off sort of thing. It's kind of hard to understand. I mean, in the UK, for example, it's never been a political issue. You know, going right back to Margaret Thatcher, she actually started to decarbonise the UK economy because she closed down a whole lot of coal mines. Now, she might not have had climate change as the driving force behind that. Um, but, but she, she was, a, you know, arch conservative and kind of got into climate change action really early. So in the UK and in most of Europe, um, it's never been a political issue. You know, I mean, different parties have wanted d- different ways of approaching it, I suppose. But it, but it hasn't been that ideological divide like it has been in, the UK, in Australia and in the US A lot of people blame it on the Murdoch press, that the Murdoch press, which is dominant um, here and in the US, kind of created that divide and and created a false debate when really, from a science perspective, there's never been a debate. Um, So who knows? But um, the problem is it it did become entrenched in politics and in ideology, and it still is. And, I mean, this so-called plan is a product of that.
0: And you said that... Australia seems to be accepted differently to other countries in Europe and around the world. Uh, Is it embarrassing sometimes to be an Australian when it comes to climate change?
1: Oh, always, yeah. I mean, I just hope, and whenever I do interviews with foreign media, I do try to emphasize that just because the federal government is doing this doesn't mean that's how Australians think. You know, I try to emphasize that there's a difference between opinions in the community and also in business and, and the federal government. So, um, But it is, it is embarrassing to, to be known as the international climate action pariah. Um, that hasn't changed. That, I think, will be even more. And just this morning, it was announced that Australia is refusing to sign up to the pledge to reduce methane, to halve methane. So that was on the news this morning. And Angus Taylor of course, quite um, erroneously and disingenuously is saying, oh, well, because half of our methane emissions come from agriculture, we'd have to cull all our cattle, you know, which is just ridiculous. So, you know, they're going into this climate meeting first up with a pledge to refuse to be part of global action on methane, which is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. So I think they'll be absolutely pilloried at Glasgow and quite rightly, I hope they are.
0: You co-authored a great article in the conversation and you referenced something called the carbon budget. Could you explain what that is to me?
1: So from a science perspective, we actually know that there's actually a pretty close relationship between how much carbon we put into the atmosphere and how much global temperatures rise. And if if you put that on a graph, um, of carbon and against temperature, it's actually a line that's pretty straight. So what that means is we can use that relationship to ask the question, well, for a, for a chosen amount of warming, let's say two degrees, how much more carbon can we afford to emit into the atmosphere um, before we reach before we're committed to reaching that temperature? And so we can use, and that's called the carbon budget. So it's like um, a household budget. You know, you've got $100 to last till the end of the week. You know that you could spend that all on the first day or you could eke it out, but you've only got $100. And so if you spend $40 on the first day, you know you've only got $60 to last till the end of the week. It's exactly the same principle. So based on the carbon budget, we know that... Um, we've only we we will go over the 1.5 degrees in the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, unless we stop emitting all carbon tomorrow, which is pretty unlikely, um, we're going to go over the 1.5. Our challenge is to only overshoot that by a bit and to bring temperatures down before they hit two degrees. But we know from the carbon budget that unless we halve global emissions by about 2030 we will go well over two degrees. So that's that's the carbon budget in a nutshell.
0: And is each country given a certain part of this budget and has Australia been given more?
1: Nobody gives a budget to anybody. That's just the atmosphere. So different countries are pledging different amounts of emissions reduction under the Paris Agreement. There was no requirement to the signatories of that agreement as to how much they should pledge or what baseline to use or what targets to set. It was really more, please do what you can um, and then please become more ambitious over time. You're not allowed to put up a target and then backtrack on it. So countries have had um, absolute autonomy to pledge whatever they think is best for their country. Unfortunately, what Australia's done um, under conservative governments, is pledge a very, very weak target.
0: And you talked about that we're likely to go over that 1.5 degree um, temperature rise. What's going to happen if we do go over that to uh, countries around the world, including Australia and the Pacific Islands?
1: Well, look, regardless of what we do, the next few decades, climate change is going to get worse before it gets better. So the world has already warmed on average 1.2 degrees. So Australia has warmed on land 1.44 degrees already. So we're pretty close to that target already. And if we look at what's happened with a global warming of 1.2, we've had things like unprecedented bushfires. Um, we've had um, sea levels rising rapidly, which magnifies storm surges. You know, There are some islands in the Pacific that have already gone underwater and many are, are being threatened. Um, We've had increases in the amount of flooding because rainfall is coming down in more intense bursts and we've had increased extreme days and and heat waves. So what we can expect over the next few decades at least is more of that and getting worse. Um, But So what we've got to really do is reduce emissions very rapidly before 2030 so that we can level off global warming by about the middle of the century.
0: And you said that... Uh, well, climate change is something that's going to affect us in the future, and will get worse before it gets better. Do you think that long-term uh, thinking is something that uh, impacts the decision making on climate change? If people think, maybe the decision makers think it won't affect them as badly, that makes it easier for them.
1: Well, look, I think you know, climate change is affecting us now. So that that's the first message. You know, it's not a future; it is a future problem, but it's a now problem as well. You know, we've already had. You know, 2020 was globally the hottest year on record, and it was 2019 in Australia. We've already had huge impacts, so it's not a matter of saying, "Well, climate change is a future problem; it, the problem's is just going to get worse." So, you know, that is affecting decision making around the world. And you know, the reason why there is so much emphasis on the Glasgow meeting is that the the focus will be on what we do this decade. You know, what what are the emissions targets for 2030? um so yes it is it is affecting decision making it's affecting business and investment and and just global attention on this topic so unfortunately our government because it still wants to support the digging up of coal and mining of gas is doing as little as it thinks it can get away with and in fact you know, at the same time as saying net zero by 2050, they're still supporting and subsidising um, gas exploration, the opening up of five major gas basins. There's 80 new coal projects, you know, under consideration. So they're actually continuing to put us push us in the wrong direction. And any emissions reduction that Australia has uh, made is mainly because the some of the states and territories are doing a lot. It's not because of any federal government policy.
0: How important is this Glasgow summit?
1: It's enormously important. You know, we might look back on it as being the most important meeting of the century. You know, after Paris, Paris was hugely important because the the climate agreement that was formulated there is just an amazing, amazing international framework for action. And it has brought about a lot of action and a lot of attention and a lot of planning. But what this Glasgow meeting is is all about implementing that those promises and implementing them quickly. And even since Paris, which was six years ago, emissions have continued to rise and so the urgency now is even more great than it was in Paris.
0: So renewable energies are the key to reversing or stopping our um, damage to the climate. How viable uh, is are renewable energy sources in Australia for running our economy and powering our homes?
1: Well, we've got some of the best renewable resources in the world. So it's the, we're we're the sunniest inhabited continent. We're actually one of the windiest continents as well. Um, We actually, we have to back those intermittent renewable energy sources up with, with storage of some sort, but there's, you know, now great technology for battery storage and and other forms of storage. And that's improving all the time. There's no technical reason why Australia couldn't convert to being fully electrified um, and fully powered by renewable energy so we've got to both increase our renewable energy we've got to so th- there's um, no technical reason why Australia couldn't convert to being we fully have to electrified, electrified transport electrify manufacturing and we have to move right away from coal fired power and gas fired power but I mean, the damage that Australia really does to the world is not actually what we do at home. It's what we dig up at home and ship elsewhere. So Australia is the largest exporter, single largest exporter of coal and one of the largest exporters of gas and is getting bigger. Um, And if you put the emissions that um, are caused by Australian products together with Australia's domestic emissions, we're about number five or six emitter in the world. So we're a huge part of the problem. So we, we have to be a huge part of the solution. Uh, unfortunately, this government just it's not going in that direction. Still isn't.
0: And now back to our headlines. Crown Resorts is set to keep its licence for Crown Casino, despite an eight-month-long Royal Commission stating that it is unfit to run the South Bank Complex after exposing illegal, dishonest, unethical and exploitative behaviour. Instead, Ray Finkelstein, the commissioner in charge, has given Crown two years to clean up their act under the supervision of a government-appointed special manager who will oversee all aspects of its business. During this time, James Packer, a majority shareholder of Crown, will have until 2024 to sell his 37% stake in the company down to 5%. A party of 17 major news organisations published a series of articles known as the Facebook Papers, which revealed confidential information about the social networking organisation. The collection of documents that the Facebook Papers are based off of were originally redacted documents turned over to the US Securities and Exchanges Commission by former product manager Francis Hagen. The 17 outlets all published pieces that described numerous findings, such as Facebook losing its teen audience, refusal to remove the like and share button, a lack of regulation on international hate, and Facebook's lack of action on human trafficking, as well as other revelations. Sudan's military arrested its prime minister after a power coup, and just hours after that, began dissolving the government. Protesters that number in their thousands took to the street to stand against the coup that threatened the country's democracy. General Abdel Fattah Burnan, head of the Sudan military, announced on national TV that he was dissolving the government and the Sovereign Council. General Abdel stated that he was arresting the prime minister in order to protect him from civil war, and that he was not kidnapped or attacked. We arrested the prime minister to protect him. He was placed with me at my home. He was not kidnapped or attacked. Bergen continued on saying that the military will remain in charge and will appoint a technocratic leader to lead the country in the elections of 2023. During the protests, security forces fired into the crowds, killing three protesters and wounding 80. Here's Natalie Anderson with Sport.
2: First in Sport, Scientists warn AFL mandatory break for concussions may not actually be long enough. Deakin University's Center for Sports Research is analyzing whether the movement or technique of some AFLW players make them more prone to ACL injuries. Last year's AFL report informs medical experts that ACL injuries were on the rise in the women's games, with 7.5 occurring per 1,000 playing hours as compared with 5.1 in 2019. Professor David Wright from Monash University Neuroscience Department has more information.
1: If they have two injuries that are close together or or multiple injuries close together then there is research to show that that can lead to neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and then of course chronic traumatic encephalopathy which we've heard so much about.
2: Ultimately, this current research project will compare the movement patterns of male and female footballers, and the project also intends on solving the mystery of why women's players experience ACL injuries at a more rapid and higher rate to their male counterparts. On to NRL news… The NRL will not mandate COVID-19 vaccinations, however, unvaccinated players may have issues with state protocols the NRL chief executive Andrew Abdo informs that players will not be mandated to have the COVID-19 vaccinations. However, he has warned the unvaccinated players could be subject to harsher protocols. Andrew stated that a vast majority of clubs have close to 90% of players and staff that have already been double vaccinated. Andrew explained in a recent discussion late last week, we are busy working on protocols for the players who are vaccinated and the players." that are not vaccinated. Hopefully, we are talking about a very small group of players. They will have, I'd imagine, some pretty rigorous requirements around what they'll be able to do in order to train and play and lastly on to nba news stephen curry and miles bridges named nba players of the week the golden state warriors guards stephen curry. and charlotte hornets forward miles bridges have been claimed to be the nba players of the week for week one of the 2021 to 2022 nba season the golden state warriors tweeted recently now that's how you start a season at stephen curry 30 is your Western Conference Player of the Week, a brief review of Week 1 for both the Golden State Warriors and the Charlotte Hornets. The Hornets are officially off to a 3-0 beginning, and much of this work is from Miles Bridges. Miles showcased his true professionalism in the season opener, finishing with 13 points, 8 rebounds, 4 assists and 3 steals versus the Indiana Pacers. And for the Golden State Warriors, Curry was predominantly the ultimate diving force behind the Golden State really getting behind a 3-0 start to open 2021-2022. to He began the week with a triple-double, 21 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists in a win against the Los Angeles Lakers. From there, he then had a 45-point, 10-rebound game two days later in a win against the LA Clippers. And that's all in the sports newsroom.
0: Thanks Natalie. A recent report has uncovered that Meghan Markle was the victim of a targeted hate campaign on Twitter. A Twitter bot analysed over 114,000 tweets and discovered that 70% of the hateful tweets have come from just 83 accounts. 55 of the accounts were primary and 23 were secondary, used to amplify the messages from the primary accounts. The Duchess of Sussex has a history of suffering online abuse including during 2019, when she said she was the most child person in the world. The Victorian Health Department spent $127 million on unusable PPE at the beginning of the pandemic. They also spent $27 per bottle of hand sanitizer. A report by the Victorian Auditor General has revealed that the state government underestimated the cost of the pandemic to taxpayers by $800 million. The Department of Health and Human Services also overpaid by nearly $14 million in a business support package and expects that $3 million may have been claimed by fraudsters, which the police are investigating. Today's episode of The Wind Down was written by Didi Kuti, Tim Wilson, Ayana Osman, and Angus Delaney. Our editor was Ebony Weston and was produced by Angus Delaney. Our artwork is by Emily Lee. You can find us on Instagram at Swinburne Journalism or The Wind Down Swinburne on Twitter at Swin Journalism or on our website theswinstandard.net